We're listening to the Critical Mass Radio Show, Orange County's business talk show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies with your host, Richard Franzi. Welcome to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Richard Franzi, and this is episode number 956. She's back. I've invited Mira Farka, Ph.D., to come back and highlight some of the recent findings in the Annual Economic Outlook and Forecast. This year's report is titled, The World on Edge. I've invited Dr. Farka to come back for our annual discussion about the economy. Mira, welcome back to Critical Mass Radio Show. Thank you, Rick. Always a pleasure to be with you and your audience. Uh, it's, uh, the pleasure's all ours, I'm sure. So let's get right into the report. Another Fascinating read. Thank you very much. You know, your report opens stating the facts about this current recovery, like things like this is the fourth longest post-war in the post-war era, the fifth longest since 1900 with significant GDP growth and growing employment. If these are the facts, and I don't debate you on them, I'm sure they are the facts, tell me, why is the mood within the U.S. not more positive? Well, it's true. Uh, we've come quite a long ways from the depth of the recession. We've added about 15 million jobs since 2010. The economy has grown uh, roughly about 15 percent since 2009, when the beginning of the recovery started. Uh, the problem is that all these numbers that I'm rattling off and we're talking about today are far b- below where we could be and where we should be. On an average recovery, on a normal recovery, we should have had about, you know, instead of 15 million, about 30 million jobs by now. If GDP grew by 15% on an average recovery, not the best of them, but average recovery, GDP should have grown by 30% by now over the last six and a half years. So we're certainly far behind where we should be. And that's why the mood is one of a very slow, very sluggish, uh, very sort of uninspiring, unexciting type of growth path, unexciting sort of recovery. We're talking with Dr. Mira Farka. She's with the Wood Center for Economic Analysis and Forecasting. Okay, so let me challenge you a little bit because you i heard you say normal and average which leads me to my next question because later in the report you suggest that this recovery is underperforming when compared to normal or average recoveries but are those historical benchmarks even rele- relevant or relative to what we're seeing about the economy and the future Right. So that is a very legitimate, that's a very good question, very legitimate question. So we have to sort of look back and pinpoint why aren't we growing at a rate of a normal or an average recovery? Uh, usually, especially I mean, in the past, it used to be the case, the deeper the fall, uh, the quicker the bounce. Uh, mm-hmm. This is, if you go back all the way to 1948, when we have uh, most of the records, that they, uh, we've collected the records since 1948, you see, of course, the deeper the drop, the faster the recovery afterwards. Obviously, this is not what happened this time around. And they're very, so it's a number of reasons why we're experiencing sort of this lower uh, recovery. One of the, re- a couple of those reasons there isn't much we can do about. A couple others we could. There's something we could do something about. So in, in fact, in our report and in our presentation, which happened last week, for the, for the annual forecast, we identify three main culprits, if you will, as to why we're experiencing low growth. One is demographic. So we have an aging demographic. There isn't much we can do about this. Uh, if you look at it historically, uh, you know, labor force grew much higher at a much higher rate than population growth 
from the 70s all the way till 2000. You see on average about, you know, 2% population growth, 1.7% population growth, but labor force grew by more, by about 2% per year. That's because women joined the labor force. Now, the other reason is, uh, now, this thing changed dramatically since the start of the, uh, of, of the millennium. La- uh, population growth has slowed down a little bit, but that's not the main reason. Labor force has grown by much less. So if you look at it from 2000 to 2010, population growth was about, grew by about 1.1% per year, but the labor force actually grew by even less, by 0.8% per year. And that's because we have aging demographic. That's because the baby boomers started to retire right around 2007, 2008, and this trend will continue. So the next decade or so, we see labor force growing only by 0.5% per year. That's half, less than half of what we saw. Uh, from 1970 to 2000. So that's one reason. Other re- so, so again, will we get back to the normal recovery? Well, not with these demographics. So that's one force holding us back. The other reason is, of course, productivity growth. Uh, that has slowed down a bit, and we can talk more a little bit more about that. Uh, the third reason is regulation. Uh, regulations are indeed, have indeed exploded, and that's what's holding back productivity, and that's what's actually slowing our growth. This is one thing we can do something about with some political goodwill. We're interviewing and speaking with Dr. Mira Farka, Ph.D. We're talking about the annual economic outlook and forecast that she and Dean and Neil Peary present each year here in uh, October-November time frame. It was just last week here in Orange County, but we're sharing your analysis with the world, Dr. Farka, and uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, Your report highlights the fact that job growth has been at the top and the bottom end of the weight scale. In other words, the growth has happened on the edges of it, bypassing the middle-income jobs. Do you view this as a structural reality of the economy going forward or just the current post-recession reality? That's another very good question. Uh, I think we have both. I think uh, the problem is that uh, we are experiencing some of this is due to the, slow recover, to the slow recovery. Some of this is the fact that uh, during this recovery, you know, job growth has been quite robust, 2.5% in the low wage uh, scale. Same story, 25 2.6% job growth per year for the high earners. However, however, we've only grown by about 0.7% per year on the middle income job. So some of this has to do with the fact that things are moving very slowly, but some of this is indeed structural. The fact that we have, I mean, nowhere else is this better explained than in the manufacturing sector, where we've lost about 6 million jobs since the beginning of the, uh, of the recovery. Uh, sorry, since 2000. That's 6 million jobs, and these are low-wage, uh, sorry, these are low-education, low-skilled, but middle-income type of jobs. Uh, that also explains the reason why for the last five decades, but more prominently since the last 15 years, we've seen a lot of prime-age men. These are men between 18 to 54 years old who have been sidelined. I mean, they're, uh, if you look back, even going back five decades, their participation rates have dropped dramatically by 14 percentage points. This is, that means they're not really working. That means they're sidelined. And part of the reason why they're sidelined is precisely because the economy is not creating the right types of jobs. This is not a current phenomenon per se. It started way back. It accelerated in 2000. Uh, and that's the reason why, I mean, uh, you know, part of the problem we're experiencing is cyclical, 
But most importantly, part of it is actually structural. Uh, we didn't face a lot of the problems. A lot of the problems that are facing us today, the slow growth, didn't just start with the Great Recession. A lot of our issues did start further back. Some, you can go back three to four decades, but most of them did start at the start of the millennium. And this has to do, of course, with the fact that China's rise, China's integration in the global supply, train, chi- supply chains, China actually joined the World Trade Organization in 2001. That was a huge major shock that created disruption and dislocation across the world. So I wouldn't be surprised to see that, that's in, you know, that, that we are actually contending with these issues. The loss of the manufacturing job, which are the primary, primary driver, which were for the, four, for the last four decades, the primary, primary driver of middle-income type jobs in the U.S. We're talking with Dr. Mira Farka, and this is an important issue. I, um, you first brought this cohort issue to my attention several interviews ago here on Critical Mass Radio Show, and you, you told me, you, in your words, if I remember correctly, I'm quoting you now, that we're creating sort of a permanent underclass here by not having the kind of jobs that historically the, the economy created for them and 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 we're not we don't do politics on this show but i really think this election cycle for the president has brought that issue to the forefront of the consciousness of the country like it's never been before absolutely and we shouldn't i've been exactly we've talked about this issue i'm surprised this hasn't kind of come to the fore before it really i would have expected these issues to be sort of boiled over 15 years ago right. the whole trend started but it, in a sense it almost took 15 this list basically a decade and a half for the realization to sink in that these jobs are not coming back that indeed china's rise internationally and its integration in the global supply chains will have ramifications for our jobs for our uh for our economy as well now we're not going to unravel world trade or we're not some of these jobs are of course also displaced by productivity growth and we're not going to uninvent technology but certainly we have to come to a full understanding that there's certainly an underclass or a permanent class of those uh, broad segments of population who are indeed left behind. And I, I'm not, I wasn't surprised at all to see this coming to a net, to sort of a head during this election cycle where you see the anger and the discontent really being uh, very forcefully expressed precisely from these broad segments of the population. So in a sense, if you think about it, I mean, the pie has gotten bigger in the last 15 years, but, le- but some of the people are really left starving. Yes. And that's what I think politicians have sort of assumed away or not dealt with for a long time. We're talking with Dr. Mira Farker for her annual visit here. She actually comes twice a year because we pick her up in the spring when they do their mid-year economic analysis and forecast. And this is the annual report. We're going to take a very quick break here on the live stream on OC Talk Radio. And for those of you listening to us, iTunes, don't go anywhere. Because I want to come back and I want to ask her this question. Why do you, as a trained economist, see trade as being a self-evident good thing. So don't go anywhere, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Farker will come back to address that question and a few others with the time we have left with her. But first, here's a short commercial from me. Richard Franzi is a highly sought-after keynote speaker on topics of interest to CEOs of middle firms across North America. Richard's talks include Killing Cats Leads to Rats, a fascinating look at how unintended consequences of CEOs' decisions impact their firm's performance. 
Your Gray Matter Matters, which explores how a CEO's mindset can differentiate a middle market firm and define its culture. Richard delivers talks to a variety of audiences, ranging from executive team retreats to keynotes in front of hundreds of CEOs. To learn more about his talks, visit criticalmassforbusiness.com and select the contact page or call 949-887-4104. Welcome back to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Richard Franzi. A great way to stay informed about our wonderful guests like Dr. Farka is to sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to criticalmass4forbusiness.com at the bottom of any page, any page, there's a join our mailing list box. Simply type in your email address, hit subscribe, and automatically, like magic, you will start receiving our weekly newsletter with information about upcoming guests and special insights from me. They, we don't do anything else with your email other than put you into our newsletter, and we would appreciate you subscribing to it. All right, Dr. Farka, it's your chance to defend this question. Why, as a trained economist, do you see trade as being a self-evident good thing? <laughs> I get this question very often, uh, uh, Rick. If you take any econ course, Econ 101, we do make a forceful case. Economists do make a very forceful case that trade is a good thing. Uh, I do teach my students that, you know, one of the main assumptions in economics, and we even show this, we even prove this with examples, is that trade can make everyone better off. But I actually do, <laughs> I do under- underscore the word can, and, and that's because... There may be cases when, you know, and it's indeed the case that not everyone is better off, but trade can make everyone better off. And here's where we actually discuss the terms of trade, uh, have to make sense on both parties that basically, uh, uh, you know, they negotiate their trade deals. More importantly, more importantly, economists always have understood that trade does create dislocations and sort of disruptions. The problem is that we've always assumed that at the end of the day, you know, market mechanisms, the invisible hand sort of takes care of all these dislocations. And indeed, some of this did occur. When we lost a lot of the manufacturing jobs back in 2001, 2002, 2003, as China was speedily integrating itself in the world economy, it's true that we did see some of these workers who lost their jobs sort of retooling, reshaping themselves and becoming, they moved into the construction sector. That was the time, if you recall, from 2003 to 2006, when the housing sector boomed. So that, in a sense, kind of masks the problem, masks for a while the problem we were facing. The issue is after the housing bust, that sort of bubble went away, and now we had, now, now we're truly facing the stark reality that trade and, of course, technological progress has subsumed has actually taken over has has replaced a lot of these jobs we will not get them back and now we're left with the point of what do we do with millions of sort of low to middle educated workers who and low skill who actually were earning pretty decent living before but there's none of that available today we're no longer creating the middle income type of jobs for the low skilled the low educated or low to middle educated people so that is the realization that even the economists are coming too late, that there are cases when, you know, the market forces are actually not working well. As I've joked before, we can't turn this lost manufacturing job. We can't turn the construction workers or the manufacturing workers into nurses overnight. I mean, the only couple of sectors that are doing well is the healthcare sector and ed- education. 
You can't turn them into nurses overnight, and that's one of the biggest issues that we're facing. We're talking with Dr. Mira Farka here on Critical Mass Radio Show, and we're just picking at some of the tremendous content that's in her latest economic outlook and forecast. It's titled, The World on Edge. Okay, so help me to understand something. On one hand, your report shows that in manufacturing, 3.7 million jobs have been lost to technological progress since the start of the millennium. But on the other hand, your report also shows that business productivity growth has been far below the historical rate of 2%. We've kind of already talked about a bit that. But isn't business productivity largely driven on technological advances? And in other words, are we not bound to have job losses when we have business productivity improvements? I mean, I don't know how you get one without the other, Mira. No, you're absolutely correct, yes. Uh, so let me explain. It seems a bit of a conundrum. In fact, that takes sort of drilling down in details a little bit more. We have indeed experienced some technological progress in since, since the millennium. Um, in fact, if you look at the data, so I mentioned about for, of the 6 million jobs we've lost in manufacturing since the start of the millennium, 3.8 million are due to this you know, automation, technological progress. About 1.6 million are due to trade. The others are due to some other types, of, like a reduction in demand and things like that. So the vast majority of jobs in manufacturing, for example, are being replaced by robots. That's true. So your job is being replaced by automation. The, the issue is that we have done very well in reforming and getting progresses in technology in certain areas, like manufacturing. But if you look at the overall business sector, if you look at the service sector, for example, technological advances are very hard to come by. I mean, I teach, I'm a, I mean, I'm a professor at Cal State Fullerton. I mean, how many other different, we, we do integrate technology, I do it in my own lectures, but how many different ways do you have to make more efficient teaching Econ 101? You still have me speaking, you have a classroom. We have, sure, we do stuff online, but that you know, that by itself doesn't lend to many technological progress. And as our society, as the economy becomes more and more service-oriented and less and less goods, goods, goods producing, we see less of a technological progress done in services. Uh, in fact, if you look at productivity growth, if you look at it historically, from 1970, actually from 1948, if you go all the way back since the end of World War II, uh, till about 2004, uh, productivity growth overall was a, was quite high. It was about you know 2.7 uh, percent uh, per year, and most of this was due to the goods producing service, uh, sector. But as that sector of the society, as that sector of the economy became smaller and smaller, uh, productivity gain actually did take a hit. And if you look at it from 2004 to 2010. I mean, the numbers are staggering. We only Productivity growth was only 1.4 per year. Since the recovery has been dismal, 0.5% per year. Now, of course, they're going to replace jobs, but I also worry about the fact that we ourselves are not even getting uh, more uh, bang for the buck. We're not even actually innovating as fast as we mm -hmm. should in the service sector. And that's the conundrum that you get. You know, that, that, that's where you see that you're getting manufacturing job being replaced by technology, uh, but the service sector is getting much bigger and it's more labor intensive. You know, we're we're up against the clock, but I've got another question because uh, uh, 
in a different direction. I'm going to talk about Orange County for a moment. But if I had more time, I'd want to dig at a little bit in the idea that, because on previous Critical Mass radio shows, you've talked about how important productivity is to standard of living. I don't have time to get into that with her today, uh, people here on uh, the audience for Critical Mass. It would be a topic that if we had more time, I would I would want to kind of revisit that with you, because I, I think... I think what I'm learning from you in our repeated conversations is, in economics, uh, everything is interrelated, and nothing is ever good or bad. It's sort of like relative to the moment in time that you have. You know, it's just, you, you really have to take the time to think it through and consider all the variables, which is why I highly recommend to anybody who's who has the time and is willing to, reading their 38 uh, report, The World on Edge, is uh, a marvelous read and something that, if you spend the time, you will get the return on your time invested. So we're going to talk about how to get that report in a minute. But before we go there, Dr. Farka, let's look at Orange County for a moment. Your report forecasts that the medium housing price in Orange County should eclipse 735000 which was the peak of 2007. You think that's going to happen potentially sometime next year, like 10 years after it hit the peak, sometimes in 2017. And you show the biggest employment gains have been in the leisure and hospitality sector, which traditionally are a low-paying sector. I mean, what's the implication, in your opinion, for home ownership, given kind of these two factors as I framed them here today? Ah, you're right. I mean, it's going to be tougher. Uh, you, you're still going to have people probably looking for housing in uh, Riverside counties or San Bernardino counties uh, and commuting to Orange County uh, since, as you very correctly pointed out, leisure and hospitality has been the biggest growing sectors. Now, home prices in Orange County are certainly being pushed up mostly from the lack of supply. I mean, it is... Uh, We've, we've got, you know, it's overbuilt if you compare it with the inland areas, for example. So certainly we do expect Orange County to rebound much sooner than Riverside and uh, San Bernardino and even L.A. County and reach the peak somewhere next year. But certainly we're going to continue to have these dynamics where the low income, the low wage earners, the leisure and hospitality, and actually most of, most of the healthcare sector are still low-paying jobs uh, when you look at the services side of it. Uh, those those people are probably going to buy somewhere else and actually commute in Orange County. Boy, I wish I I wish I had more time with you because th- your answers just beget more questions. And and that is, if you take a longer term horizon and you look at Orange County as a, a sixth largest county in the country and a vibrant place to live and work, but you know what. What is the longer economic impact of these kind of trends? You know, one of the things that I've learned from you is that um, you've got to take the long view when you when you look at these economic analysis. But it, unfortunately, my gut feeling is this is not a good long-term project trajectory for people who want to work in Orange County and being able to afford to live here. No, absolutely. I mean, it is. It is. This is a statewide issue, but it's more acute in the coastal areas, and it's certainly more acute in Orange County. Uh, and it's going to be with us. I mean, the, you know, the, we, we don't have enough affordable housing in California in general, but certainly uh, the coastal areas and certainly Orange County, which is also much, one of the richest uh, counties in California, uh, it, basically we will have to contend with this sort of dynamics going forward. One last thing I wanted to add, which hopefully will add it in a better, uh, sort of ending it in a better note, uh, one good to say is Orange County, if you look at the diversity in terms of the jobs that it creates and the sectors in which it employs people, Orange County, we did a, a small study that shows Orange County is third, ranks third in the entire nation 
I want you to think about it in terms of the most uh, it, it, its diversity of economic se- uh, sectors. It ranks third behind Silicon Valley, Seattle, and then it's us. So that's actually a very good news, and I find I find it's encouraging, uh, f- uh, at least for you know for for the next generation or so. Right, because diversity is a is a good thing in a, in general, and here specifically in in the kind of the economic base, that certainly helps us weather kind of any booms and busts in industries, etc., and creates exactly. wage earners who can afford the housing prices, etc., and and we go on from there. But. Um, I cannot emphasize enough to the audience. Listen here on live stream on OC Talk Radio or possibly iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker. What are the other platforms where you listen to our show? The the value that I derive each uh, six months when I take the time to read what Dr. Farka and Dr. Perry write in the economic outlook and forecast. So if someone wants to learn more about the Wood Center for Economic Analysis and Forecasting, and specifically your latest economic forecast, outlook and forecast, where do they find this online, Mira? So uh, they can also contact me. My name is Mira Farka. I email us efarka at fullerton.edu. But we also have a dedicated webpage where we actually post all our latest uh, reports and analysis. And for that, they can go to business.fullerton.edu forward slash center forward slash economic analysis and forecast. So my engineer asked me to have you... I'm sorry, Mary. Could you spell your e- your email address for the audience? The email. So the email is e as in echo, f as in Frank, a r k a e farka at fullerton.edu. As always, the time has flown. I wish we had more clock here to spend with you. You, uh, I just enjoy these conversations so much. But <laughs> thank you for the hard work and dedication that you've put into these reports, and thank you for your willingness to come on the radio show and share it with our community. You're a valued member of our critical mass community, Far Mira. Thank you so much, Rick. It's always a pleasure to be here. And, and as you always, time always flies so please. <laughs> okay, thank you. And I'd like to thank our engineer for today, Paul Roberts. Our producers are Joan Park, Crystal Nunley, Haley Stern, and I'm your host, Richard Franzi. If you'd like to learn more about our radio show, podcast, and the firm that I lead, visit my website, criticalmass4forbusiness.com. And until the next show, I hope all of your business decisions will move your company in a positive direction. You have been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show Business Talk Show, focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies. With your host, Richard Franzi.